Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the Kokoro Movement Podcast. On this episode, we have the one and only Dr. Perry Nicholson. But before we get this party started, I have a message from Dr. Kelly Sturette. For your listeners, we have created it's the readystate.com slash Kokoro Movement. We've got we've got something for you. You know, we have if you just want a two-week on-ramp crash course, full access to everything, we'll give that to you for two weeks. Come come see how we're solving the problems. Take steal what you like. You know, leave the rest behind, you know, keep speaking your own movement language. All right, my friends, there you have it. Please take advantage of that free two-week offer from thereadystate.com. And before we get started on this amazing interview with Dr. Perry Nicholson, I want to let you guys know about some of the webinars that he has coming up soon. So first, he has the Lymphatic Mojo that's going to be from December 12th to the 13th on Zoom. And the next one is the Fluid Force System, which is going to be a webcast from December 17th to December 18th. So please go to stopchasingpain.com and sign up for either one of those or both if you're feeling frisky and want to learn a million things. All right, so here we go. The interview with Dr. Perry Nicholson coming in hot. my friend welcome back on the podcast it's a pleasure to have you on well thanks for having me back my friend it's been way too long i know it's been uh it's been hectic uh the last eight months i think the last time we talked was on andy's uh round table back at the end of april and you know it's been kind of survival mode since then <laughs> yeah it's been a bit a little bit of a rough patch in 2020 i hear it is. Yeah. Yeah. So how have you been adapting to this? Because you traveled more than anybody I've ever met. And so that just kind of came to a grinding halt. So how's that been working out for you? It was kind of rough, to be honest with you. Yeah. I mean, my whole life for five years was on a plane, Yeah, uh, standing in front of a room teaching in the U.S. and throughout the world. I mean, I was in another country all the time. And that was just the way it was for me. I was go, go, go. Uh, all the time. I loved it. It's, it's everything that's, you know, my calling or my passion. And then all of a sudden it stopped. And yeah. uh, it, 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 I always tell people, it's kind of like I was on the road as like a musician or something. And then you go off tour for the album and then you're okay. What am I, what am I going to do with myself now? <laughs> right. And uh, I had more stress from that than uh, anything else. But in hindsight, it's a blessing because I mean, I was stuck in this constant go mode all the time, but I didn't know what the word relax meant. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was forced on me at that time. So I really, once I got through the initial stress of it, uh, it's been a really great teacher for me overall. And um, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure what 2021 is going to bring, but I'm going to embrace the lessons that I've learned through this one. 
Yeah. And it's a, it's hard to think about it as a blessing just because of the stress that's involved, but it is true kind of forcing you to go into yourself and, you know, spend time with your family and, you know, be outside more. That's a thing that I started doing is just going out and running and riding a bike and hanging out with my dogs and, you know, just being outdoors and just kind of taking time to yourself, which is really uh, difficult to do when you have your own business that just all of a sudden just stops. And so, and, you know, trying to distract yourself from the fact that you can't do what you love to do is really kind of hard, you know? Yeah, it really is. But it's something that uh, I talk about all the time is, is that you're, you're never going to grow and expand when you're comfortable. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 even though that that's what the human, that's what the brain wants is comfort. It, it doesn't like to, to be, uh, you know, under threat and, uh, and under stress. It likes, it doesn't like risks. It likes comfort, but you don't really grow when you're at that standpoint. And most of our valuable lessons in life come from our greatest amount of suffering. That's usually not voluntary. Yeah. Yep. And so that's, I've been contemplating that a lot over the last couple of months is, is kind of seeking out that suffering. Cause I think that that's where a lot of people thrive in that comfort. And then when they don't have it, then they tend to just freak out and buy toilet paper, it seems like. And so if you go out and you do difficult things on purpose, then Mm -hmm. I think that that makes your life a lot easier. You know, like, you know, my whole theory is like, if you can't wear a mask to the grocery store, you should probably run a half marathon or something. And then it'll make the mask really easy. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it's the, if you, the people that I think search out that struggle they're the ones that are happier in their everyday lives because they can appreciate it a lot more. Yeah. Well, that's how you become uh, more resilient as uh, a human being or any animal is through stressors. I mean, right. we, we need that. I mean, that that's what, when we go to the gym and when we train, you're, you're voluntarily putting an extra stress on your body and stress is good. Yeah. up to a certain point because you're, you're supposed to then adapt to it so you can handle more stress right. in the end. Uh, that's what uh, training is. But a, little, a lot of people make the mistake when they go into training is to do too much stress, right? Yeah. They, they overtrain, they overdo it, and then it actually takes the body the other way. So it's, like, it's the Goldilocks syndrome, right? It's the not too hot, not too cold, just right. And what drives people crazy is that everybody's got their own Goldilocks. Nobody right. has the same nobody has the same temperature, you know, and yeah. that's the, and it's the same thing with your immune system. You know, your immune system only becomes stronger when you, when it gets exposed to things that take you down for a little while and then you recover from it. Key word there is recover. Yeah. And then when you come across it again in the future, the same germ, for instance, that you might be exposed to, you're, you're much more able to handle it or, you know, you just, breeze right through it because your body's like okay been there done that I've, I've got this and we need to do that in relationship to everything else but it's really hard to step into that uh that that fear that we have uh you know yeah that's the hard part yeah and the hard part is uh paying attention i think because you know when i was 30 i recovered a lot faster than when i'm 40 you know so then 
trying to figure out where that new threshold is for me and really listening to my body and understanding when I did too much and realizing that I need to take a rest day and not go out and push it is, has been notoriously difficult for me, especially since I was very competitive, like in my late twenties to early thirties where, you know, you're training for something. And so in order to hit that peak so that you can taper for that competition, you have to kind of go pass beyond what your recovery actually is so that you can be in that peak condition. And so, you know, that's a lot different a decade ago than it is now. So that's especially what I've been struggling with um, while trying to train during this uh, weird time where I can't really, I didn't really have access to the gym for the first four months. And, you know, it was just really weird trying to figure that out. Yeah. I like to call that wisdom. You know, yeah. you start, you start to get when you get older and you've had your ass kicked a lot by life and you, step back and you start to learn from the lessons. And I've had to do the same thing for me as well. I mean, I've, I've been training and exercising and, you know, lifting heavy stuff and putting it back down since I was 14 Yeah. and I'm 54. So I, no, I, I, st in my mind, I do what I used to do and sometimes with my body as well, but it tells me, okay, you're going to need some extra time after that one. And yeah. I have to, I have to listen to my body and, it, it was very interesting for me. I think most of my life I was a chronic uh, over exerciser or over trainer where I just loved it so much. It's all I wanted to do because I felt good about myself and I wanted to make a change. And I just thought more was better what so many people do in many aspects of their life. And I was doing workouts that were from the fitness magazines where, you know, you got Mr. Olympia because I was into bodybuilding and I would do like 20, 20 sets for biceps, something ridiculous like that. Right. And I'm like, why in the hell am I not making any progress? Yeah. <laughs> and, and then now I, years later, when I started to my body, I had to pay the price for all those decisions earlier through injuries and stuff like that. But when I started to take the extra time and be okay with, with quote unquote, not training. And I realized that my body does so much better when I have like three days in the week, that's some pretty intensive you know, moving load um, besides my own body, of course, but I always do some, I used to do days where I would train, which were first of all, too much. I was doing six days, seven days a week. But then I would have days where I would train in the gym because mostly gym driven. And then when I was outside of the gym, I really wouldn't do much besides yeah. work. But as I got older, I got more um, ill-learned. I do some type of physical motion or movement every single day. And yeah. it's just part of, part, of my, part of my life, whether it be I do 10,000 steps every day as a walking thing. And then that's a great goal for anyone to have just doing that i tell people can be absolutely transformational in your in your body and you know, with this pandemic and stuff depending on where you're located in your mandates that you're with right and you can get out and walk and if you have the if you're blessed to be around nature where you can physically go in the woods right or on terrain where you don't have a lot of other humans around you but you have life around you that that movement and that environment and that atmosphere will begin to heal you 
Yeah, absolutely. And I spent, and I think the, the thing that people had a lot of difficulty wrapping their head around was that they no longer were able to go somewhere, you know? So like the, mm. the gym, the big experience of the gym is you go to work and then you go to the gym and then you go home. And so a lot of my uh, coaching clientele, uh, stayed on with me and then we just loaned them out gym equipment and they were able to work out at their house, but they had a really hard time being physical in a place where they were supposed to be relaxing, just kind of wrapping their brain around that. And I did too. So then what I did was I went running, I started running a lot. So I, that was something that I would go do. And then I bought a uh, mountain bike. And when I was a kid from like, 14 to like 22 i just rode bmx all the time so the second i got on that mountain bike that little kid was so stoked and i was just riding that thing like crazy and it just felt so good to kind of slow down and focus on this one thing that wasn't the stress of like trying to keep the gym open or trying to get more clients or what the pandemic was doing or if it was going to close down my gym again but just focus on just being present on this mountain bike and looking at trees and rocks and trails and just being outside in the sun i think it was just really cathartic and i just love the heck out of it it was my favorite thing ever yeah well you know your nervous system never forgets anything right and when you yeah. jump on that bike like you said your, your inner child comes back and your your muscle memory comes back that's like they say well you never forget how to ride a bike it gets encoded in there but i i, yeah. I like that too especially with mountain biking because you know, one of the things that can help you with stress is to stop paying attention to whatever it is that's in your mind that won't let go. Uh, yeah. And, you know, human beings get caught in this vicious loop that we play over and over. You know, that's the stress loop that we get under that when we have trauma in our life, that's, you know, unique to human beings. We just can't let stuff go like, like other animals. And when you're on a mountain bike, you, you have to be paying attention to what you're doing with the bike. Yeah. otherwise you're going to get hurt so you're watching you're watching where the tire goes you're feeling the sensory feedback from the bouncing into the earth and the grip of your hands and your foot and the pedal and the 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 surroundings around you and then you for, you forget everything else so that that sense of being present and awareness it's something that a lot of humans have a hard time doing that's why we drown ourselves in um, you know, the phone or, you know, we're at this for not even two seconds before we go to this for two seconds, if it doesn't hold our attention and we're, you get caught in this like nonstop sensory, bah, 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 bah. And then when you don't have it, you go a little bonkers and, uh, yeah. but that, that's what, that's what we need. So I think that the thing that hit us with the pandemic and COVID is something that, you know, we've always needed to take time to rest and recover and find things for our lives that give us a sense of purpose and meaning. And uh, you know, nature, we found a way to hit that reset button pretty hard. So yeah, you know, people say, oh, what should I be doing with COVID to help my stress? Like what you should have been doing before COVID right. to help your stress, the same thing. Yeah. And <laughs> it you know, change. And that's one of those things is that exercise is the most underutilized antidepressant on earth. And just, you know, just if you go out and do something else, you always feel better, you know? So that's one thing that I have to keep reminding myself because, you know, cases are on the rise again and our gym is under threat of having to close again. And, 
you know, I'm just finally kind of getting my feet back under me and they're just going to, they, there's like a potential of getting sweat back under, but every time I just go deadlift or, you know, go for a ruck with my dogs or, you know, go on a mountain bike ride, I just, I always feel better, even though like my, my, everything in my body is telling me that I don't want to do it. And then as soon as I get started, I'm like, oh, this is so much better. And it's just immediate. Yeah. Well, also too, you know, when we're in this world of movement and exercise, because that's what we do. Yeah. And, you know, we know the value of exercise in relationship to stress or depression and anxiety and stuff like that. But, you know, many people don't know that. And they, they, so we move all the time and you think, okay, well, if I know it and I do it, then that means everybody else must know it and do it. Not so much. Yeah. Because many people don't look at it that way or exercise like can become an unhealthy relationship as well, because it's a way for you to escape something you might be needing to confront all along. But, um, you know, cause it can spiral down. I mean, I was in the world of bodybuilding for a while. It's very easy to get so caught up in your physical appearance and your performance that your self-worth gets uh, equated to how well you look or how well you perform. And you can actually become more, more stressful and anxiety and neurotic. I see it all the time. And bodybuilding is called dysmorphia. You just don't mm-hmm. feel like you're ever big enough or proportional. It's just, I find it ironic in that world that everything is, you're judged a champion or not based on what you look like on the stage, not who you are inside. Right. And you know that, that can feed, a lot of people get into those things for that very reason, because they're looking for validation via how they look. And that led me to doing many things that I should not have been doing at the time in relationships. I, you know, I said, I'm very truthful. I got in the world of competitive bodybuilding and anabolic steroids. And I'm like, okay, we got to do whatever it takes to get where you need to go. And you'll worry about that later. Well, yeah. you know, I had to write the checks for that later. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know? And you know, so similarly I was into competitive CrossFit, you know, so I was yeah. doing like four hours of CrossFit a day, five wow. days a week. And you know, well, if I get this, six pack abs and girls are like me and you know, they don't care. (laughs) You know, that's what you realize is you're just like, Oh, well I have, I'm the strongest in the gym and I'm the fastest in the gym and there's no girls that care if I'm fast or strong, you know what I mean? So it's just a, it's this weird kind of game that you're playing with yourself and your insecurities to try and attain this level of whatever it is that you're trying to attain. And, you know, I got to the point where, you know, I realized that I was trying, I was training this hard and blowing myself up this much to be top 20 in a local competition, not even like a national competition. I'm like, well, what am I doing this for then? You know, and then the more I learned about um, movement and the human body and the way that it responds to different things and how it actually functions and what makes it better, then the more I started looking at CrossFit being like, well, that doesn't make any sense at all. Why are we even doing this? You know, so like, mm-hmm. You know, then um, I uh, jumped on the Z Health War Wagon. They just released, or uh, months and months ago, they released the uh, the free uh, and the Neural Fundamentals. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you know, they were talking about the 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 minimum effective dose, and I was just like, "That's exactly what I need as a person right. to feel better, and what most people probably need to feel better." You know. 
Yeah, minimum effective dose is a very powerful concept. You know, if more is not better, better is better. And it's just like medication. I tell people, just because you do great with 10 milligrams doesn't mean I can kill you at 20. Yeah. So it is the tolerance that you have. But it's something that when you start to pay more attention to how your body feels after exercise, you realize how it doesn't actually take a lot to make a change in the body. So what I mean by that is that you remember how you know, when you went to the gym for the first time or you took an extended break and you went to the gym and you just did a little bit of lifting, right? And let's say you did a nice little session of three sets of lunges for your legs. And then the next day you had a hard time sitting on the toilet or going upstairs because you're like, oh my God, my buttocks really hurt. And, you know, so that is a result of, you know, like a minimal... Uh, the investment of volume that you got and then you start to build up a tolerance to it so then we add usually more to that or you know more weight or different speeds and things like that but most people try to do it via volume and you forget that uh, if you do too much beyond that then you can actually overtrain and you decrease your progress so that's why I like the concept of doing a lot of different things all of the time, which right. I, I use the term my friend Joanne Elpenston uses called the three V's and, and her work called variation, variability, and variety, which is basically saying do different things that you normally do in many different ways. And then that's always a novel sensory input to the brain and to the body. So it's always having to force to adapt to something and then you will be sore again without adding a a huge amount of load that can possibly one, hurt yourself or increase volume that you can hurt yourself because you haven't recovered fully. And the training is the easy part because with training, I mean, any knucklehead can train. It's just all you got to do is just show up. And training is breaking your body down. You're physically tearing down the body, which is not a bad thing. I mean, it needs that. But your progress comes after the teardown. And then you give yourself that recovery time mentally and physically. And you have to find that creamy filling sweet spot that's the best for for your body, right? Because the body's job is to adapt something because after a while it's going to be like okay i've got this down i'm pretty bored with this and if you don't give me anything new we're going to keep getting what we always got right right? and then that's why those small little changes that you add into something and i think that this pandemic was something that forced people to do that right because you would most people you've been into a gym and you've seen people train they get caught into their favorites they do what they're good at they do it on the same day every week because that's the two three days of the spend class at the same time or, you know, you do your same circuit. And then when you're forced and they took that all away from you, you have to begin to get creative very often with your own body. And that's why I loved it to where people had to go by the good old fashioned calisthenics. Yeah. Like, you know, jumping jacks and then just squat and jumping up into the air and doing stuff that they teach you that you need to basically fundamentally pass like at um, a military entrance exam. And, yeah, you know, many people are very, very strong in the gym, but they can't move their own body weight to save their lives. I mean, right. They don't have that coordination that, that, that they need. They, they struggle to do a pull-up. They struggle to do a sit-up, a push-up, things like that. 
And I've seen people that have a hard time coordinating the pattern for a jumping jack. Yeah. Which is just, it's, uh, you know, it's really weird, but like you said, we're well versed in the movement uh, world. So it's like what we, what's common knowledge to us isn't common knowledge to everybody else, you know? So like just doing like a Cossack squat, just squatting this way instead of up and down, just completely wrecks people because their, their hip is like, Oh wait, what are we doing? This is new. Cool. You know? So it's just this new kind of stimulus. And so based the way that my training works right now is I do one heavy deadlift day. Well, heavy ish. So I'm not going like, you know, one rep max or something. I'm like probably moderately heavy. Um, one heavy deadlift day, one heavy squat day and one heavy pressing day. And then every, all the time I'm doing accessory work essentially. Mm -hmm. So you know, finding myself sitting on the ground more often because when you sit on the ground, then you start to be uncomfortable and you have to fidget. So then you're just doing a lot of mobility stuff on the ground while you're watching TV. And it's just, so then that adds up over time, you know, and I'm just going to uh, jump back to the Z health thing. So, you know, we got the, the intro to neuro fundamentals and me and my wife watched like four hours of that. And unfortunately I had my podcast with uh, Dr. Cobb that day as well. So yeah. then I watched four hours of that and then did like an hour and 20 minutes with Dr. Cobb. And he's like, you have any questions for me? And I was like, my brain is so cooked right now. I have no idea what I'm even doing here. So we're just going to call it a day. Cause just like, it was just so much amazing information. That guy has so much information in his brain. It's bananas, you know, just, yeah, he's wicked smart. Good friend of, uh, of mine. And yeah, you know, he, he was well ahead of the the curve on a lot of the stuff that they're currently talking about in brain science right now. He's been talking about for over 20 years. Yeah. That's, that's what I love about him. So he's really, really smart. But I got to tell you, he's probably one of the most uh, gracious and, and kind people and uh, th that I've ever met. Yeah. And if I had the mental capacity, I, he would probably would have talked to me for hours, you know, it's just... <laughs> Well, he loves it, you know, yeah. and the, the, the man has no ego. He, he elevates everyone else but himself. Right. And you don't find that very often in this world because, I mean, he, I mean, he could be an egomaniac. He's got everything that, that, that in place that could take you there. Yeah. But um, he, he's not by any means. And I think that that's actually one of the reasons why his program is so successful is it's great content, but he has a really nice community of uh, people and that's led by example right and so uh you know very similar to your stuff he's really good at saying hey this is the information and this is how you apply that and i think that that's really important uh as far as an educator you know because we talked a little bit about me and andy uh starting our education course and it was really important that we teach people how to apply this on Monday, because that's a, I've taken a lot of courses where they're just like, here's this information. I'll see you later. And we're just like, well, now what, what do we do with that? You know? So that's really, really important. Yeah. That's a big one right there, man. That's, that's a hard lesson learned through my, my career as a student, yeah. but also as a teacher. So, you know, I, I've, I've always tried to study becoming a better teacher over we're all teachers every time you talk to somebody you can teach them something yep um you know and usually get better at teaching by teaching <laughs> right so you might by you throwing yourself into the proverbial fire you might say and say oh that went really well that didn't go well at all that's the only way you got to learn 
And, you know, I came across many different quotes over the years. And one that resonated with me was just because I'm teaching you something doesn't mean you're learning anything. Right. And, and so that's where I'm just, I'm, I'm talking at you or I'm telling you what I already know and regard, you know, just hitting you with so much information, just assuming that it's going to stick because I'm telling it to you. And when I started to go in and just do little experiments of, taking little breaks and, uh, you know, asking people questions and going back and reviewing what we talked about or bringing in different scenarios. Okay. We went through this now. Okay. Now what do we do with it? When I got the people who didn't know what to do with it, or they didn't remember, or they gave incorrect answers that really hit home to me of like, it's not their fault. It's mine. Yeah, right. Like, there's something that I have to change with the way that I'm delivering it. And then that's something that comes uh, in time where it's called the curse of knowledge. When your level of expertise goes up, you know, complex things, things begin to are simple for you because, you know, you're, you've been there, done that. And, and then you can, you can conceptualize it or visualize what you're teaching and then how you would use what you're teaching. But for somebody else, they've got zero. Yeah. reference so they're coming at you like uh, i'm showing something from an alien planet right. <laughs> and uh, but for us it appears super simple and that's why i've just tried to take things down and uh, i jokingly tell people that okay when i teach you something you're probably going to be really sick of me by the end of the day because i'm going to go over stuff like so much it's crazy so i'm i'm going to I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to tell you, and then I'm going to tell you what I just told you. Yeah. Which means it's like, <laughs> and so you'll get it, and then that becomes reflexive. And something I learned from Dan John, who's a dear friend, Coach Dan John, and one of the best teachers and communicators because he's got years of experience, and he's just a wisdom guru on top of the mountain, you know? Yeah. He's got a great way of, a hammering basics and fundamentals to a point where it, it looks simple, yeah. like almost, almost too simple that it can't work. And that's why a lot of people, first of all, uh, don't do it or skip it or don't think it's that important because it's so simple. And he said something to me that stuck with me on a podcast. I had him on where he said, people don't realize how difficult it is to make something simple. Yeah. Which means it, it appears simple to you because I just worked myself to death to make it appear that way for you. Right. So, you know, he, baby, he, he chopped the wood, carried the water, you know? Yep. <laughs> yeah. And uh, man, talk about another completely humble human being. I finally had him on my podcast too, but he was like, he was one of those intimidating guests. You know, I've had a few guests where I'm like, holy shit, they said yes. Okay. Uh, what do I talk to this guy about? You know, so like, uh, you know, he was one of those. And so was like, uh, Chris Duffin, you know, like, what do I, where do I even start? You know, but, uh, um, so like the talking to your clients, I think is like the easiest way to, um, kind of dial that in because your clients are coming to you because they're in pain or they have something going on with them. And so if you can simplify it to the point where they're like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Then you can teach it to just about anybody because they, they have no 
interest in being in your profession, all they want you to do is make them feel better. But if you can explain to them how you're going to make them feel better and it makes sense to them, then you can teach it to anybody, you know? So that's where I really struggled early on with like the frequency therapy was just trying to explain to them what that was doing and why it was helping. And that was, uh, you know, once I got that dialed in, then I'm like, man, if I can explain biological frequencies to people, then I can pretty much explain anything, you know? Yeah, pretty much. That's a tough for sure without coming across like you're insane yeah um, yeah <laughs> but, you know because you almost kind of phd to understand it uh of why it works but uh, yeah and I, I think it was i think it was einstein who said it but you know the running joke is this day that you never know whose quote is right on uh on the internet anymore but yeah. i think he said that uh you know if you can't explain it to a five-year-old you don't understand it yourself which i really believe is true and i in the world of pain especially people because it's such a it comes across as a, a complex subject and so many people are struggling struggling with it and to find answers for it that we think that the answer for helping people has to be complicated right that that it can't be so simple as when you do something to help somebody feel that much better with a small little thing that they did because it just is counterintuitive. Um, but then they also say to themselves, if it, if it was that simple, how come somebody didn't tell me that long before? Yeah. And, you know, that's a very good question. I wish I could answer that. But, right. you know, because yeah. sometimes it, I've found in the world of therapy as well, it's just like exercise. You could do too much exercise where you're not going to get well. Right. And you can, you can do exercises in different orders that can make you better or worse. Right. And they, and the same thing with therapies. A lot of people get too much stuff done yep. to, to the body. So they're, they're overstimulating the body because I think more is better. And, and it's the actual, like an order of exercises that you do order of your therapies that you do that can make a difference of whether they are as successful for you uh, or not, where I've seen people do, like say three exercises in a movement routine and depending on exercise you chose to start with that particular workout of shuffling those threes around three around your results were different right even though that even though they're the same exercises because they're not really the same exercises because your nervous system reacts to them differently depending on your starting point they call that dynamical systems theory and motor control which means that your starting point influences your outcome point right and so it's the same thing with therapies too. If I've got three different therapies that I'm using on someone, just because I use all three doesn't mean I'm going to get the same results. So for instance, I could do, say arbitrarily, I could do like an ultrasound unit and then I could do like a laser stem unit and then I could do a myofascial release. Yep. If I did all of those, but then the next time you came in, instead of doing the ultrasound first, I did the laser first. Yeah. And, and then I did the myofascial release and then I did the sound. Your outcome is not going to be the same. Right. Even though the three parts are the same. Right. And th that's a huge thing that I'm finding in the world of exercise too. Because, I mean, first of all, I hate the term corrective exercise because corrective implies that something needs to be fixed and it's broken. Right. Um, so I just like the term different, right? You just do different than you're doing now. 
And so people get a huge script of exercises and then they, they, they're told, they're usually, okay, go through this thing. And for, it's, first of all, it's always in the same order. And for, so they usually don't do it because they're like, I'm not doing 10. I have a hard time doing one. I'm not going to do 10 because I know human nature, right? right? And then I keep doing the same all the time and it's just like, ah, whatever, right? And so it's just getting people comfortable with exploration and play. And we get so stressed out about moving right or moving wrong. And that's a pet peeve of mine of so many people are asking like, am I doing this right? And I'm doing it wrong. And I'm like, there is no right or wrong to the brain. It's just different. Yeah. So you need, you need to explore because I'm going to tell you that it depends on the context that you're in because in one environment, the way you're doing it might be perfectly right. But if I put you in a different environment, that ain't going to feel right at all. Right. Right. Like, like if you're going to go out in nature and you want to squat down and go underneath the tree, you ain't going to be vertical, like an overhead squat. You're going to bend over at the freaking waist and you're going to hunch over and you're going to walk underneath the tree. Right. So you have to be able to do that in different settings because there's no such thing as a perfect movement. I mean, right. I believe that there's, there is a different movement. Uh, so it's really, really contextual. And, you know, I, I want people to feel like, even with reps, I give an exercise and they say, how many reps should I do? And how many times a day should I do it? And I say, yes, which means I, I just play with it. You know, if you yeah. want to do one, do one. If you want to do 20, do 20. It's like, and they get a little stressed out because they want you to tell them what exactly to do. But um, you can give them some guidance. I'm certainly not going to throw them into, I'm going to throw them in the water with no uh, preserver. Yeah. But they need to start to build up that autonomy that it's, it's okay, right? right? I just want them to be, have awareness and more presence when they're, they're doing it. Because if I can have you do one set where you're like really present, you're going to get way more out of it than if you did three sets where your mind is somewhere else. Right. And so I have my clients, I just tell them what they're doing. And then I tell them they're doing three sets. And then when they start, they ask me, well, how many am I doing? And then I say, well, how many have you done? Well, I've done five. Okay, we're going to do eight. You know what I mean? Because when you ask me, that's when you're starting to fatigue and you're starting to wonder how many you're supposed to do. And then I know that you have like a couple reps left in the tank, but I'm also not going to burn you out because I want you to come back tomorrow, you know? Um, and you know, so the going back to like the treatment stuff and the complicated stuff, like the telling people that they have their symptom of pain could potentially be emotional is really tough to explain to people too, because you know, they, then they automatically go, well, the pain's in my head then. I'm like, no, you're absolutely feeling your pain. It's a real thing. But that's not a injury. It's something else. And then so having to teach them that so that they can start to understand what's going on there, you know, that's a really, that's a really complicated one that took me a couple of years to explain to people too, thanks to, you know, like Dr. John Sarno and, and you know, taking some classes with you just really helped me you know, kind of dial that in, but that's, that was a tough one to get dialed in as well. Yeah, it certainly can be right. I mean, um, I always think there's some type of an emotional connection to every chronic pain, right? right. Even, even an acute one, because, you know, an acute one is going to leave an, an uh, uh, a trauma to your body. And mm -hmm. 
you know, it could be something that you forever repeat in your mind. This is this loop. Uh, or it just goes into the subconscious mind and buries itself there and it can manifest in many different ways that you're not connecting to that trauma that happened to you. And then, you know, we have to always tell people too, is that you have to just be careful of the word trauma because it implies it has to be something really, really big. Yeah. Uh, you know, a huge traumatic like accident, but it, it doesn't have to be. It could be something as, you know, like, a loss of a, a child, you know, a divorce, you lost your, your job, you know, a trauma of a, a COVID or pandemic hitting, and you don't know if you're going to be able to open up your business again, or when, when we can go back to life as it was, or, or like for me, it was actually traumatic not to travel. Yeah. Because it, it's relative, the trauma is relative to the person who's experiencing it. Yep. And so, you know, for you and what I found too, when I did, uh, when I taught those few times is, you know, that's similar to like the mountain bike thing where you really, the, the travel to the place and then the morning of, you're just really kind of getting dialed in and really getting focused and really getting present because, you know, that was a big, uh, dichotomy that I started to discover once I got out of the traditional educational system and started taking continuing education was the passion and the drive and the presence uh, behind that the educators from the you know continuing education courses you know as opposed to like going to a college course and trying to sit through a physics class where the teacher just couldn't give two shits if you were there or not and you're just like oh my god it's so hard, you know, and you can just tell that they're not engaged. And, um, you know, that's one of the things that I love about your courses is that you're like borderline yelling all the time because you're so excited <laughs> about what you're teaching. That's <laughs> you know true. I mean? Yes, I am. So yeah. even if it's like, even if you think it's really redundant, just the fact that you're so engaged and so excited about it is what makes uh, me want to take all your classes. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you very much. That really does mean a lot. Yeah, I've had, I really, I tell people ahead of time too. I say, listen, I'm going to get a little crazy, a little <laughs> yeah. out of control. And it's just because I love, I love what I do. Right? right. And so my, my voice goes up and down a lot and I do have yelling in there, but in a good way, you know, it's, I like to call that enunciation yep. and tonal changes. Uh, because that's just something you should do anyway to keep the attention of your audience. Because um, nothing's worse than going to somebody who has the same tone the whole time. I mean, you might right. as well just you're, you check out right there. Uh, but I've had it many times at the end of the day where it's hard for me to talk when I get back to the hotel. Right. I'm like, my throat hurts a little bit, you know, and uh, I'm usually exhausted too. Because yeah. first of all, when you when you teach. Um, what you love to do and you have great energy going in the room from everyone. I mean, it's like, you're always in this zone. And then afterwards you're like, okay, yeah, flights come off the stage and you just start to go like this. Yeah. And yeah, uh, I'd be so exhausted by the end of it. That I just like, I was like crash. Right. And, yeah. uh, but yeah, I mean, it's really, really been a wonderful experience. I'm glad that you had that experience at my courses and that you've also been able to do that for other people. And yeah, uh, yeah that's that. See, something that I, that I 
that we talked a little bit about before is that I, I tell people it's all the information in it itself is almost uh, not the most important thing because okay. information of in and of itself is inherently meaningless because unless you know what to do with the information or what somebody tells you you can do with the information based on your own perspective of the information, right? So I, I tell people, if you're coming to see me teach, I'm not going to tell you something that you could go and find on Google. Yeah. Because if you just want to do that and, you know, say, oh, can you show me the science of this stuff? Yeah, go to Google and type this thing in there like I did. You'll find it, right? Right. I, I'm, I'm not here to, I'm trying to explain how this stuff uh, works or yeah. how these things interact with each other right because just because you know the science of something doesn't mean you have zero clue one on what to do with it i mean right. i see that all the time like people can break down every component of this or every part of a cell and i'm like okay can you tell me what cell a does when it meets cell b no i can't because right. everything changes when you when you stick stuff back into a living breathing dynamic human being and then here's the kicker it changes based on the human being Right. So, like, that's great if you're looking at the science, but I need to see how that is going to be relevant to the human being standing in front of me. And you quickly discover that sometimes it's not because right. we have a lot of science and research based on diseases and people aren't getting better. Yeah. In my opinion, they're getting worse. Like, right. if you look up the statistics of chronic disease, that stuff ain't going down. It's no. going up. Right. <laughs> it's the same thing with back pain. I mean, yeah. back pain is more prevalent today. We spend more money on it today, even for workers' comp. And we've got the best technology of finding out, you know, what's going on in the back. Mm -hmm. But we know that that doesn't relate to the level of pain either. Right. Uh, so, And we have know. like the best practitioners on earth giving out all of this information, you know, like Stuart McGill and, and, you know, the David S. Butler's and the Michael Shacklock's and they're all giving this information out. And so we have more information now than ever, but all those guys are still studying this stuff every day, which means right. that they don't know shit. And so we don't know shit. And so what works with that person doesn't work with this person. And so that's why it's really I think critical to have such a big tool belt because the person that comes in and you're just like, Oh, well, this is it. And then they're like, well, I don't feel better. And you're like, well, damn it. Now we got to figure out something else. You know what I mean? So that's like having that wide variety of knowledge that you can rely on to help this person in front of you because humans are so complex and every, the more I learn and the more I get into my practice, the more I'm just like, God, humans are so weird. And it's a miracle that we made it this far. It's a miracle, you know, like, cause it's oh, just, yeah. just like, it's insane. And, and, you know, just that there's people that are inherently complex and they need, you know, to have consistent treatment. There's other people where I poke here and press there and they feel better immediately. And they're like, thanks. And I don't see them for six months. It's just doesn't like, it just doesn't make sense. And so we're just trying to make sense of this incredibly, like the most complex organism on earth, it seems like. Yeah. And that can be terrifying, right? I yeah. mean, cause you're, you're dealing, cause I always use a phrase that nothing is more terrifying than the idea of unlimited possibilities because where do you go first? Right. Right. And that's and what that's, screws, yeah, that's what screws a lot. Well, of when somebody, up. when somebody walks on my door, it can be anything. Right? Yeah. And, and it changes based on the, human being. So we have to have a starting point somewhere. 
I mean, yeah. that's what that's what we use our science as we know it type thing. But I mean, as you know, science changes all the time, and things that we thought were absolutely true yesterday were proven incorrect today. That that always happens. Yeah. I know great great cook, my movement mentor, always said, "Listen, I'm going to teach you today what we think is right." Because tomorrow it could be proven completely wrong, but we have to go by where we think we are. But also you have to be willing to explore the crazy, yeah. I call it. Because if you don't explore the crazy, you're never going to find anything different. Right. Right. It's the, it's the what if. And you know, science should be playful, not, yeah. not so rigid. And when you look back on science, you find most of the biggest discoveries weren't found on purpose. They were freaking found completely by accident. Yeah. That's how you found penicillin, for Christ's sakes. The guy right. left the top of the petri dish off, and then it grew there. And you know, if you if you didn't do something like that, how about you? How about you get crazy enough to even just think to leave the top off the petri right. dish? That's what I want people to be able to do, and that's what movement should be, exploration. Right. So I I'm really not. I've actually gravitated away from taking movement programs that are so rigid on form and function. And the way you have to do it, that if your elbow is five degrees off top dead center when you're doing this, you're not going to have the same outcome. And I'm like, that's gobbledygook, in my yeah. opinion. And if anything, I'm giving the person, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder who's teaching it. But also the person getting it is going to be like, oh, my God, if I, have, I have to be here and then here. And then I have to tilt my head this way. I have to breathe through my left nostril and rub my big toe, you know, all sorts <laughs> of stuff like this. When you just realize it's like exploration and just letting yourself go and paying attention. And that's why I like the stuff with neurology or the stuff with Zeho, because you realize how something just as simple as a stimulation to an area of the body with anything can make a profound difference on you when you don't get so caught up that uh, which way you're stimulating or, or how, you know, all because you can go absolutely so deep down a rabbit hole that you know you're you know ever do you have those guys that used to wear the things on their back where they've got the drum going and then they got the cymbal going and they got yeah. the what's they got 50 things going at once when yeah, they're playing a guitar around. and <laughs> yeah, yeah all that sort of stuff right and you know that's kind of what the brain is all the time the brain takes in so much information that you're not aware of that's driving the bus you're really not steering your own ship yeah <laughs> honestly you you think you are but yeah. you're making all of these decisions that were actually made long before you made them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, right? So yeah. that's what you've actually got to go after is all of that uh, subconscious, non-conscious. I mean, remember you in the Z help and they said, dude, 90% of your movement is reflexive, which means it's driven without you consciously thinking about it. So I right. want you to, if you know that only 10% of your movement is beholden to how you're thinking, that changes everything that you're doing right? when, when you're working with somebody's movement. Right. Right? Yeah. Th that's huge. So that was a really big take home for me is that most of the stuff is happening reflexively in the background. So one of the things that I've been doing is taking that concept of how the body has to reflexively stabilize differently based on a position that you're in or using that dynamical systems theory it's called you know yeah they probably talk about that in frc i know you do frc yeah but, um so you know let's say that i'm gonna be doing a plank 
So I'm down on my elbows and I'm on my knees. And what I contend is that I can make that plank completely different if I did just like, I'll say two things. If I had you stick your tongue to the left side of your mouth, and then on your right hand, I'm gonna have you put your pinky and your thumb together in a circle mm -hmm. on your right hand as you're doing the plank. And it's gonna be a completely different neurological pattern for your brain based on that. And then I've had a lot of people say, you know, when I did that, that plank was way harder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right? Because when you know, first of all, the power of the tongue mm -hmm. is amazing. But even the oppositional grip thing is amazing. You know, so yeah. simple things like that can drive these changes for people without it being a huge deal. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so, you know, that's why uh, one of the things I appreciated about Adam Wolf's new book is he said that your practice has to have a base and then you kind of expand your knowledge from that base. And so mine is muscle testing. So basically, does your brain know what to do with this position? Yes or no. And if it doesn't, then we need to figure out why. And so that's, that's been, you know, the biggest uh, kind of aha moment for my clients is like, well, you can't resist rotation until you look to the left with your eyeballs. And so that tells me that there's something going on with your core and your eyeballs. And they're just like, oh my God. You know, I had no idea. Well, did you ever have a concussion? Well, I fell when, you know, and hit my head 20 years ago, but that doesn't matter. You're like, well, it does though. You know, so mm -hmm. it's just kind of just, uh, you know, just, uh, yeah, humans are weird. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, one of the main reasons why I wanted to get you on, because I mean, we could talk about this stuff forever. Um, but one of the main reasons why I wanted to get you on was to talk to red light, about red light therapy because you've been a proponent of that for a long time. I just got my own uh, red light therapy device like five months ago and have been loving it. So I just want to, you know, uh, kind of close out this podcast here with you just kind of telling us what red light therapy is all about. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you about my initial journey into using light and it was more, uh, I've been using laser therapy light for close to 15 years as a, as a treating healing modality in my practice, but also for myself. Uh, I was a kind of an early adopter, you might say, when we, when the FDA would only approve very low powered laser at the time. Um, so I used laser light, which is a combination of different spectrums of um, light, easy red light along a, a spectrum of wavelengths. And then uh, the wavelengths determine the color of the light that you see. Because if you go um, big spectrums, they change to blue color, then they go to green, stuff like that. But you have a certain red light spectrum that you can get to, right? And then uh, and that would de determine exactly whether you would see the light or not, or not what is called a visible red. And then you can go to near infrared or far infrared, which means the wavelength change, but you can't see it with the naked eye, but they're there. And those get absorbed into the body also at different, uh, different depths and different tissue structures absorb the water. So when you go really high in a wavelength, the water molecules in a cell absorbs it, and that's more of like a surgical laser because they, yeah. they cut through things. 
And then you have a bottom spectrum. They call them, uh, you know, wavelengths or nanometers, they'll call them. Uh, anywhere from, you know, I don't want to get too into it, but six, 630 up to like 900 something. anywhere. Like, and there's a therapeutic spectrum that you have to land in in order to penetrate into the body and stimulate the depth of the tissue and the cells of the tissue in order to have that biological effect that you do. And mine helped my lower back injury because I herniated my lower back three disc herniations and I was barely able to walk. And then laser light actually brought me back from the brink uh, of, of needing surgery. And I got that about 15 years ago and I've used all different types. And so my, mine is a, a unit that's over here that I use. And I recently got a full body red light bed that you can lie in and the whole body gets a stimulation of different wavelengths of light from that red to near infrared to far infrared. And it's basically a, a principle once you start to study physics uh, and light and uh, even quantum physics, uh, light is life. And you know, you've got the big, big ball in the sky with the sunlight that we need as human beings. And they have their own spectrum of different wavelengths of light. And there is so much research on laser that's been done over the, the decades that uh, it's just no question at all that it works. Yeah. It's just now that we're beginning to catch up with that, what we can do with it for technology, especially when they're seeing what the light can do to the mitochondria, the powerhouse part of the cell, mm -hmm. which is what everybody's going over right now with all the autoimmune diseases and things like that. They're focusing on the, the mitochondria, right? And the, the huge photoreceptors in the cells of the body that react to light and what was really fascinating was to see how the the red light is critical probably the number one stimulus that you get to help you absorb water molecules mm. so that's the gerald pollock's fourth phase of water book which is one of my preferred i tell people to, everybody to get that book um, they say that the the red spectrum of light is the one that will help you absorb the water molecules because most people when i see them are in a perpetual state of dehydration yeah where where one they're not drinking water but if they are they're not absorbing the water it either goes through them or it it, it stays outside of the cell in mm -hmm. order to into in order to dilute the acidity and toxicity they have so the body won't let them absorb the water uh the cells won't let them absorb the water and then when you do the light the light helps the water molecules enter the cell. So it kind of structures it, you might say, in a way. Yeah. And it's also really, really powerful at stimulating. One of the big things that it does when you look at the research is vascularization and blood flow and stimulates nitric oxide, yeah. which, which is a vasodilator. And you, you probably know that I'm into the lymphatic system a little bit. Yeah, a little uh, bit. <laughs> and when you do that, when you do the red light, the full bed, you really stimulate the lymphatic system at the same time. Yeah. So yeah. I, I got to tell you that when, when it's done amazing things for me when I had isolated laser light, but when you can jump in the whole bed to do it, uh, I have one that's called a Theralite 360 from Theralite. And uh, you lie in there for a 20 minute, 10 to 20 minute treatment, depending on how sick you are. And 
it's been astounding for me, but also clients that come in to see me are usually in pretty bad shape. I'm, I'm kind of like the last stop for a lot of people. Yeah. So they've got a pretty bad autoimmune conditions or poly autoimmunity, which means they have more than one uh, or longstanding chronic pain. Yeah. And they all, they all get the bed. It's a 10 session mandatory thing that they do. And I combine that bed with my isolated laser that I do on them. And it's been instrumental in what I've noticed. A huge thing is a difference in anxiety changes, stress changes, sleep drastically improves, which is one thing that most people don't do well. Yeah. And that's when your brain drains its toxins at night. When you sleep, I, you know, if you can sleep, put it that way. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's really fantastic. So I'm excited to see how far the technology goes, even in the coming years. Yeah. Yeah. That's Love really, it. that's really funny. Cause that's one of the first questions that I ask people is, have you drank any water today? And then how are you sleeping? Because it's amazing that people like I have appointments at three or 4 PM and people are like, oh, I haven't had any water today. And I'm like, Whoa, <laughs> probably why you have a headache. You should probably address that. You know, like it's just it's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Just, yeah. Uh, Dehy dehydration is a huge factor for people. And you know, they, even when they drink water, it doesn't mean you're actually absorbing the water. Either. Right. Yeah, which is a, a big thing. And then, you know, there's plenty of people that are way smarter than me. They could talk about the different types of water that you can drink and stuff like that. But, yeah. yeah. Right on. All right, man. Well, I appreciate you taking the time today. This was a really fun conversation. Yeah. I can't believe how fast it went. I mean, an hour went by like that. You know, I know. That's that. That's that theory of relativity, right? Um, yeah. How something feels like it goes by so quickly. Yeah, absolutely. But, that Einstein yeah. cat again. He was pretty smart, that guy. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> I, he might have changed the world a little bit. <laughs> I think so, man. I think we use a few. Where the hell are all these guys now? That's so, what I want to know. Yeah, so there's a old Joe Rogan comedy special where he's joking around saying, are we making sure these people are procreating? You know, like, are they spreading their seed and making other smart people? Because I don't know how any of this works. Like, I don't know why this microphone's loud. I don't know how this camera on my phone works. Like, we need to make sure these people are just having children. Like, <laughs> you know? That's, yeah, that's a good one. I like that. That's funny. Yeah, that's really good. All right, my friend. Thank you again. I appreciate you. Oh, you me too, brother. Anytime. Take care. Right. Really good to yeah. see you again. Yeah. Bye. Yeah, I'll talk again soon. <laughs>